You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.fin. Man, thanks so much, Dave and Scott. Well, guys, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us this morning. My name is Dave. Uh, as Dave already said, I'm the youth pastor here at church. And I think we have some of our sites uh, joining us today as well. So welcome to you uh, too. Uh, we're continuing our series in Acts, a series called Christ, His Church and His Cause. And today we're going to be in Acts chapter 14, 1 to 7. So feel free to find that in your Bibles uh, or on your phone. Uh, we're picking up Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey as they visited a place called Pisidian Antioch. That's where we're in just prior to this chapter. And here they preached the gospel. Many people believed, and yet there was division as well. There were some who did not believe. And they experienced persecution and were eventually expelled, rejected from that area. And this is a pattern that we're going to see in Paul's missionary journey again and again. And today is no different. Today, uh, we're going to be reading about Paul and Barnabas' visit in a place called Iconium. Um, I'm sure you've heard the expression when something's like oil and water. You're describing two different people or two different things that just don't mix. And we've probably all seen that where you've got water and oil in a container together and they're just not combining at all. They're completely separate. Not a particularly compelling thing to watch. But if you add some heat to that equation, it's a different story. If you've got like a pan of hot oil and a single drop of water hits the surface, what happens? It starts to spark and spit out. There's a reaction there. And if you add lots of water, it becomes this extremely volatile combination. You could even start a fire if you're not careful. And I think what Luke, who, who wrote Acts, the author of Acts, I think what Luke is trying to show us in Paul's missionary journey is the incompatibility between the kingdom of God where Jesus is at work and the kingdom of darkness where the enemy is at work. And when the heat of God's power is present, the enemy can try to resist it and, become, and it becomes a volatile situation. So we're gonna read this morning that happening, this, this clash of these two kingdoms in Acts 14, one to seven. So from verse one, let me just get that in my Bible. Acts chapter 14 says this. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both the, Jew the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Amen. So what is Luke trying to show us here? What do we see as God's kingdom advances in power, as, as water meets oil and these two kingdoms clash? Well, the first thing we see is salvation and rejection. 
Uh, now strap in, I'm going to give you a little peek behind the curtain of how we do things here at Catalyst Live. I can sense the excitement coming through the camera lens right now. I want to talk to you about wireless mics and how we attach them to people. Yes, come on, this is what we're here for. So what we do at Catalyst Live is we actually have these little magnets that you can see here. I'll try not to touch it too much because it's probably wrecking my audio. But these little magnets hold the wireless mics in place. Basically, there's a clip on the wireless mic and then you put that wireless mic on the inside of your clothing, you put the magnet on the outside and it holds it in place. Now, these magnets don't look like much. They're pretty tiny, but they are flipping strong. So I ordered two of these. They came in two separate boxes and I was convinced that the boxes had been glued together through layers and layers of packaging. They were just like cemented like that and it had to like proper wrench them apart. If these magnets meet, it's so difficult to get them to separate. And in fact, the pull of the magnets are so strong that if you're not careful, part of the magnet will actually break off as it slams into contact. That's how powerful the attraction is. And you know, you've probably played with magnets when you were a kid and stuff. You know that the opposite is true as well. You, have, you can have this amazing attraction, but then you have the repulsion as well. If you put the magnet the other way around, it'll just shoot off, right? And you can try and force it to connect, try and force it to stick, but no matter what you do, it's just gonna get pushed away. You see, it's the alignment of the magnet that determines whether it's attracted or repelled to a magnetic force. And it's the, the alignment of the heart that determines whether it's attracted or repelled to the good news of Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas experienced. Back in verse one, it says, they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. And then verse two tells us as well that there were Jews who refused to believe Verse four says the city is divided. Some are siding with the Jews, others are siding with the apostles. So what we're seeing for many of the people in Iconium is they experience the magnetic, irresistible pull of the gospel, the message of grace that Paul and Barnabas are preaching. You know, that message that, that sunk into their hearts that says, can it be true that every mistake I've ever made can be wiped away, that I can be forgiven? Can it be true that I can experience like a love so incredible? Can it be true that someone loved me so much that they were willing to die for me so that I could know freedom? You know, for these people, they've been drawn, they've been pulled into this amazing relationship because their hearts were receptive to the Lord. They were aligned correctly. Many become followers of Jesus. And then on the other hand, there are those who refuse to believe. Their hearts are closed off and they're not aligned correctly. And rather than being drawn into this incredible way of life with Jesus, they're, they're repelled. It's not like they're indifferent to what Paul and Barnabas are saying, it's not like, oh, it's not really for me. Like they're repelled in the other direction. They're offended by it. And not just that, they want other people to think the same as them. And I think this is one of the marks of the, of the power of God's kingdom advancing when his power comes when his power comes. It's like Luke is, uh, is the author of Acts and he also wrote Luke's gospel, unsurprisingly. Uh, but he records in chapter 12 in Luke, what Jesus said about this very thing. So in chapter 12 of Luke, verse 51, Jesus says this, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, 
I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's a bit of a tongue twister. But what is Jesus saying there? He's not saying that he hates peace, even though it seems like that at the start. Do you think I came to bring peace? No, I came to bring division. Well, that doesn't make sense in some ways because he can't hate peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. No one can bring more peace to a situation than he can. But what Jesus is actually trying to say is that the message of the gospel, the message of salvation is gonna cause division. Because when we're presented with the gospel that says that we are sinners in need of saving, we're gonna respond differently depending on how our hearts are aligned. You know, when we're aware of our need for salvation, you know, our inability to deal with the sin in our lives, we wanna rush to Jesus. We wanna accept that offer of life that he gives us with both hands, because that's an amazing offer. But if we're in a place where we can't accept that, it's offensive to us. It's like, how dare you imply that there's something broken and something wrong in me that needs to be fixed. I don't need to be saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message is the same, but what really matters is how our hearts are aligned to hear it. For those of us, maybe we've tried to share our faith in the past and maybe we've felt disheartened if it didn't have the effect that we'd hoped, uh, we'd hoped. And I've definitely been there. You know, it can make us think if we try and share our faith and it just feels like it's not received well, you can just think, well, maybe I'm just not good at this. I, I didn't say the right thing or this is for someone else to kind of do, like a, a, a better Christian would do a better job of this. And I'm just gonna kind of back away. We can feel like we're in that place. But if that's you, there's some encouragement for us in this passage because even Paul and Barnabas, who spoke so effectively, they didn't see everyone saved. Sometimes it's not about how well the message is communicated. Sometimes it's that people's hearts aren't in a position in that moment to receive the good news of Jesus and accept him into their lives. Now, that's not to say it doesn't matter how we communicate our faith, that you know, we don't have to try. Of course, we can always grow in this. We can grow in, in learning to communicate this more effectively. First Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope you have. So we wanna do this well, but I think sometimes we can tie ourselves up in knots and think, well, if I'm talking about sharing my faith or the gospel. It's like, how do, I, how do I do that in like a really succinct way? How do I condense all of that in, you know, in a, in a sentence or two? And that can feel really overwhelming. How do we do that well? Actually, I think testimony can be a really powerful place to start. Even just trying to think in one sentence, like what is the arc of, or, or the journey of my life with Jesus? What is the journey? What is the adventure that he's taken me on? What has he done in my life? Or even what has Jesus done in my life recently? And in moments where we have the opportunity just to share a bit of our story with someone, we can have something just ready to go. Just a simple sentence like, you know, I've been going through a really hard few months, but Jesus has really been helping me deal with my pain. Or one of the things I love about Jesus is he's helping me become more like the person I want to be, more like the man or the woman that I want to be. 
It's like, oh, okay. Or actually, do you know what? I experienced Jesus healing recently, or I experienced freedom from anxiety or some peace recently because of him. And those moments can be really effective because what they do is they invite more questions. We can share then after that more about who he is. This is something I wanna grow in more for sure, but it's not about being discouraged if we've stepped out and someone's heart is not in a place to receive Jesus in that moment. It's not stepping back and saying, well, you know, I'm not gonna try that again. Actually, it's pressing in and saying, God, would you, would you move in that person's life? Lord, would, where their heart isn't aligned towards you, would you turn it, Lord? Would you draw them to yourself and cause them to turn to you? You know, like the parable of the sower, we are called to sow the seeds of the message of Jesus generously and widely, not bit by bit, like one by one, but just generously go for it. Just share what Jesus has done. And it says some of it will fall on rocky ground, but others, it will fall on good soil and faith will grow from that. In all of this stuff, it's about recognizing that actually the thing that attracts people to Jesus is not us, it's not our amazing story, or it's not how well we're able to communicate what he's done in our lives, but it's the Holy Spirit who's at work in us. It's that magnetic pull, that power that can come only from him, and it draws people to Jesus. What we do is important, sure, but more importantly is Jesus who draws people to himself through us. And so like Paul and Barnabas, we are called to be people who advance the kingdom of God. Do you know the vision of the vineyards in the UK? Um, it's, it's condensed, it's boiled down into this sentence, which is amazing, I love it. It says this, extending God's kingdom together everywhere in every way. Extending God's kingdom together everywhere in every way. That's what we're called to. That's the mission that God has for us. And I know I've been talking about whether our hearts are aligned and about salvation and stuff. And it might be that for some people watching, you, you're not in a place where your, your heart has, has been aligned previously to, to accept that message of salvation. And I would just encourage you just to explore that, just to be like, God, actually, are you trying to turn something of my heart towards you? But for those of us who, who do know Jesus, you know, maybe we have said yes to him and, and we follow him, we believe in him. I wanna suggest that maybe in this mission, this, this advancing of the kingdom of God, there can be areas of our lives where our hearts are kind of turned the other way, where we're not drawn in, we're not attracted to the mission that he has. And it's a great question to ask God, would you examine my heart? Are there areas where you want me to commit to joining your invitation to extend your kingdom everywhere in every way? So that's the first thing. As the kingdom advances, we see salvation, and we see rejection. The next thing we see as the kingdom advances is persistence and resistance. Now, I remember being in physics in high school and our teacher started to talk about non-Newtonian fluids. Now, if you're not into science, I'm sure this sounds like the most boring three words that you could slam together and you're kind of switching off already, but genuinely it is super fascinating. It's really, really interesting. In layman's terms, it's like, it's like a liquid that behaves like a solid when force is applied to it. And because of that, you can do all these kind of weird and wonderful things to it. So this non-Newtonian fluid stuff, you get people online who will take a massive big 
bass speaker or something like that, and then they'll pour it in. They'll pour this liquid into the speaker. They'll put some music on, and then as the vibration of the sound waves is hitting this fluid, it starts to kind of like turn solid and start to kind of grow, and it's this like weird kind of twisting, growing, living plant thing that's just kind of like moving all around to the music. It's it's really wild. And then if you switch the music off, it just kind of melts down into this puddle again, like. It's amazing. You can literally make this yourself at home with water and cornflour. So, go for it. Why not? Um, but one of the things that it does is it does this kind of all this weird stuff. But th basically, the, the highlight, the main thing to know about it is if you touch it kind of lightly, if you don't put any force on it, it's just like a normal liquid. But as soon as you apply pressure, as soon as you apply force to it, it goes solid. It's like if you punch it, it's like punching a wall. So the more force that's applied, the more like a solid it behaves. The greater the power, the greater the resistance. It's the same for Paul and Barnabas here. As they step out in God's power, they experience the resistance of the enemy at every turn. At every turn. Like the non-Newtonian fluid that we were just talking about, it's like the more they push forward, the more pushback they feel. So we start seeing this with the Jews' refusal to believe Paul and Barnabas' preaching. There's this seed of hard-hearted pride and it quickly grows to slander as the Jews stir up the other Gentiles and poison their minds against the apostles. Paul and Barnabas, though, they're not deterred. They redouble their efforts. They keep going and resolve to stay there, probably for months at least. And they speak boldly for the Lord. And so there's this kind of escalation and then the power of God comes and says it says in those verses it confirms the work that they're doing um, by and enables them to perform miracles and signs and wonders and so that power increases again and you're seeing these kingdoms clashing it's the oil and water thing and the power is escalating so many are coming to know Jesus. The apostles are performing these miracles. It's amazing. And you'd think at this point, there is so much evidence to, to support what the apostles are saying. Surely those people that refuse initially, they're gonna change their minds and go, hey, do you know what? We were wrong. Actually, the opposite happens. What they do instead is they say, we're gonna kill them. We are gonna kill these men. Like it's escalated massively to this point. It's just, it makes no sense because you think people are getting healed, people are being set free, the most amazing things are happening and yet these guys want the apostles dead. And so we see the persistence of the apostles and the resistance of the Jews. Luke's being really clear to us here that as we see the kingdom of God advance, we're going to encounter resistance. That following what God is calling us to do rarely results in a path that is free of opposition. And we can sometimes mistake difficult circumstances that we go through as we're following God as, as like a closed door. It's like, oh, well, this feels difficult, so God mustn't be in this. And there may be some moments where that's true, but what we see largely in the Bible is actually we should be expecting this. We should be expecting that when we're following God, when we're being obedient to his call and his voice in our lives, we're gonna meet resistance. It's not gonna be easy. And that means we need to follow where the Holy Spirit is leading us and still persevere. It'll mean moments of hardship, but it also mean moments where we see God is at work. Persevere. And you know, there's another element to this because I don't know if you do this as well, but 
often we can read the scriptures and it's like we put ourselves in the shoes of the good guys, right? It's like we're reading this and it's like and we're trying to kind of like see parallels between ourselves of like Paul and Barnabas. And we can read this and be like, yep, I need to be bold. I need to be persistent like Paul and Barnabas. And that's true. And that's a great thing to take away from this passage. But actually, maybe it would be helpful to just to take a minute and put ourselves in the shoes of the Jewish people who reject the message of God. You know, there's that initial seed of stubbornness and pride that eventually turns into wanting Paul and Barnabas dead. And you might think, well, this is pretty extreme. How, did this, how does this apply to me in Aberdeen or wherever you're currently at? But you know what? There is truth in this. What we hand over to God can be used by him for his glory. But the enemy uses what we give him to. And what we see is with the Jews is that the things that they hand over to the enemy, those initial seeds are, are grown and the enemy uses them. In Genesis 4, 6, there's this similar kind of seed of jealousy we see in Cain and Abel. And Cain is eventually led to murder his brother Abel. But God warns him before that happens. He says this in Genesis 4, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. 1 Peter 5.8 says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know, we can be so accommodating of sin in our lives. It can just seem like a little seed, a little compromise. But actually what we see consistently in the Bible and outside of the Bible is that sin grows. I know, you know, I've been talking about murder, which sounds extreme, but the reality is we can't afford to tolerate sin in our hearts because it is toxic to us. When we give it leg room in our lives, when we give it space, it takes us further down the path of darkness than we ever intended to go. And the enemy will use what we give him. I've, I've, I've seen this in moments in my life and you know, we see it in, in big ways all the time in the news, people that having you know, a, a big fall from grace, people doing evil things that they never thought they would do because that seed has been allowed to grow. Sin always leads to destruction. And so we don't wanna miss this in our lives. We wanna ask God, would you examine my heart? What are the areas of sin here that I'm actually tolerating today. Look, I'm allowing them space. I'm allowing them to take up residence. You know, for me, I don't wanna give the enemy any grounds in my life. And if, if, when we recognize that, all we have to do is just move from that place of kind of stubborn refusal and like, no, no, it's fine. And just be like, you know what? Actually, Jesus, I need your help with this. God, would you come? Would you, would you forgive me of this sin? Would you help me with this? I need your rescue. We read before, the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. But the truth is, he's a caged lion. We don't have to be afraid. And equally, we don't want to live with our hands and our fingers kind of like going up to the bars and trying to poke them through. Let's continually reject sin, surrender it to Jesus, and press on with perseverance what he's given us to do. So as the kingdom of God advances, we see salvation and rejection persistence and re resistance, and lastly, victory and defeat. And we're not gonna to spend too long on this, we're coming into land, but in verse six, we find that Paul and Barnabas learn about a plot to kill them. 
And so they flee um, to the cities of Lystra and Derbe. And it, it feels like a defeat reading this, right? It feels like, well, the kingdom of God has been advancing. They've been preaching the gospel. All these American, amazing miracles have happened. And now they've been forced to leave. And so on one hand, it seems like the enemy has won. But Luke concludes in verse 7, they continued to preach the gospel. And in the passage just prior, when they had a similar um, set of circumstances in Pisidian Antioch, he says at the end of that, when they've been expelled, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's how he concludes it. So even though it looks like defeat on the surface, they walk in victory because the ultimate battle has already been won by Jesus when he died and rose again. Regardless of the opposition, regardless of all the evil things that go on in the world that we can feel powerless against, even when it feels like defeat, God's kingdom continues to advance. I just wanna finish with this story. This, um, this amazing story actually about a guy called Bishop Festo Kivan Gary. Um, in Uganda in the 70s under the general, uh, the dictator, army general Idi Amin. Um, violence was everywhere in the country. Some horrendous things happened. And this, this guy, Bishop Festo, was this incredible man who played a massive role in seeing a real revival in Christianity come to Uganda in this time. And he gave this account of, of three men who were in his diocese. and. They were being executed by firing squads in 1973, so they were just about to die, and this is what he said. February 10 began as a sad day for us in Kabali. People were commanded to come to the stadium and witness the execution. Death permeated the atmosphere. A silent crowd of about 3,000 was there to watch. I had permission from the authorities to speak to the men before they died, and two of my fellow ministers were with me. They brought the men in a truck and unloaded them. They were handcuffed and their feet were chained. The firing squad stood at attention. As we walked into the center of the stadium, I was wondering what to say. How do you give the gospel to doomed men who are probably seething with rage? We approached them from behind and as they turned to look at us, what a sight. Their faces were all alight with an unmistakable glow and radiance. Before we could say anything, one of them burst out, Bishop! Thank you for coming. I wanted to tell you, the day I was arrested in my prison cell, I asked the Lord Jesus to come into my heart. He came in and forgave me all my sins. Heaven is now open and there is nothing between me and my God. Please tell my wife and children that I am going to be with Jesus. Ask them to accept him into their lives as I did. The other two men told similar stories, excitedly raising their hands, which rattled their handcuffs. I felt that what I needed to do was to talk to the soldiers, not to the condemned. So I translated what the men had said in a language the soldiers understood. The military men were standing there with guns cocked and bewilderment on their faces. They were so dumbfounded that they forgot to put the hoods over the men's faces. The three men faced the firing squad, standing close together. They looked towards the people and began to wave, handcuffs and all. The people waved back, then shots were fired and the three were with Jesus. We stood in front of them, our own hearts throbbing with joy, mingled with tears. It was a day never to be forgotten. Though dead, the men spoke loudly to all of Kigezi district and beyond. 
so that there was an upsurge of life in Christ, which challenges death and defeats it. The next Sunday, I was preaching to a huge crowd in the hometown of one of the executed men. Again, the feel of death was over the congregation, but when I gave them the testimony of their man and how he died, there erupted a great song of praise to Jesus. Many turned to the Lord there. What an amazing story. You know, there may be pain. It may feel like there are defeats and opposition along the way, but we know what happens at the end of this book. We know how it finishes. He wins. Jesus is victorious, and we get to live with hope in the light of that victory. When the kingdom of God advances, when people come to know him, hope is born in the hearts of those who accept him. I think, what was it that that man said in that In that story, when he was facing death, he said, heaven is now open and there is nothing between me and my God. That's where his eyes were fixed. And that's the reality that steers the steps of Paul and Barnabas. And that's what we're invited into as well. Despite the pain, despite the apparent defeats that we might experience, Jesus is victorious. And maybe this morning we need to recall and remind ourselves that he is Lord. He is sovereign over it all and he has won the victory over. He's won the victory for us and we can walk in that victory. And so as the kingdom of God advances in power, we see salvation, we see bold persistence and we see ultimate victory. Amen.